time for uh, the kids to head off to their classes. We'll send out the uh, nursery and the preschoolers first, please. You can leave. Thanks for uh, helping us worship. Your voices singing are just as important as anybody else's voice in this church, and we, we uh, wish you well in your class this morning. <coughs> the rest of us can be turning to the book of Proverbs, chapter 30. Now the uh, senior kindergarten and elementary kids can head off behind them to your classes now as well. <coughs> I'm going to be reading, as I said, from Proverbs chapter 30, uh, five verses, and we'll draw some lessons from those. After the message this morning, uh, we will uh, take a few moments to celebrate communion together, and uh, Josh Cowan will come forward and lead us through that little part of our service of worship and remembrance. Then we'll have a little break and then regather at 1230. Well, you'll have a bigger break. Uh, uh, we'll regather at 1230 for our uh, annual general meeting, and uh, if you go home, uh, we're, we're sure hoping you'll come back again uh, or just go to a restaurant and have a coffee and then come back again and uh, we'll see you here then. Today's uh, message is taken from the field of zoology. Zoology is a study of the animal kingdom and uh, we're going to look at four little creatures this morning and uh, see if we can learn some things from them. This morning I'm celebrating things that are small and weak and ordinary and uh, that actually is all of us. And, uh, and I hope that we realize that and glory in that special honor that God has given to us. Lord, please take these next few minutes and speak to our hearts and build us stronger as a church and root us deeply in Christ and energize us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Uh, uh, this message has two things behind it this morning. Uh, the first one is, uh, has to do with an email that you're going to get uh, maybe tomorrow. Uh, from the church office, and it's an email asking for your help. And uh, it'll uh, explain what we need for help, but uh, as you might have noticed, our first service is quite full, especially, uh, it's quite fuller 10 minutes ago. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's maxing out. And we, uh, in order to continue to grow and make room for new people to come to Grace and to be able to extend God's love and gospel to them, uh, we need to try to make some changes and see if we can get the second service functioning at a fuller capacity as well. That would mean that we need to uh, start a Grace Kids program in the second service. And that would mean that we need some helpers uh, and some volunteers to help get that Grace Kids program going in the second service. And, uh, and then some people uh, hopefully would be able to shift uh, their attendance habits to the second service and we could have two services with more room in them and equal uh, ability to grow. So uh, uh, that's one thing that's behind this message this morning. It has to do with all of us participating uh, in a solution to our need here at Grace. The second uh, thing that uh, uh, is on my mind this morning has to do with uh, Steve Adams' message, very good message, uh, uh, from a week ago. And Steve, at one point in his message, talked about uh, the beginnings of his life in Christ and how, as a boy, he was picked up to go to Sunday school. His parents were not churchgoers, and uh, we had a, 
that was my church as well that he went to, uh, Westside Gospel Chapel over in Cambridge, the Galt part of Cambridge. And uh, he spoke of how the, uh, the people of Westside Bible Chapel uh, cared for him as a boy and loved him and shared the gospel with him. His parents weren't there. He was just one of the kids. Uh, there was a Sunday school bus that picked the kids up uh, for Sunday school, and for a time, I drove the Sunday school bus. And uh, <coughs> I told Steve, I've made you everything you are, buddy. <laughs> so uh, he talked about what a, what a rascal he was, and I remember Stevie. He was a good kid. He was a rascal, but he was a good kid. And how he was led to Christ there. And he talked about how the ordinary faithful, committed people of Westside Church loved him, prayed for him, and cared for him over a period of years. And uh, their service has borne fruit in the life of that man, and his life and service has borne fruit in the life of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people uh, in the Cambridge area, borne fruit in my life as well, and many others. And so it makes me think of the faithful service of, uh, of ordinary people. You know, at Westside Church, I was thinking back to some of the folks that I knew there as a, as a kid, and uh, there, weren't any, um, there weren't any university professors, there weren't any uh, uh, millionaire business people, there, there weren't any superstars at all. In fact, as I was thinking, um, <coughs> there were a couple of farmers, there was a Bell telephone switchboard operator, that was my mom, uh, there were three plumbers. That'll make a strong church. <laughs> there was uh, a train engineer. I always thought that guy was cool. There was an elementary school teacher, uh, factory workers, a salesman, and a milkman. Back in the days when milkmen came to your door. But their commitment and their faithfulness to Christ touched Steve Adams and many others. Let's follow their good example. Our passage for study today has some examples from the animal kingdom, and it will teach us valuable lessons about character and community and work habits. So let's go straight to our passage now, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 24 to 28. I think it might come up behind me. Verse 24. Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Conies are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. I was uh, interested in the uh, sentence structure in this little passage. You know, a big, a big part of Bible study is just observation, just looking for things. And, and I noticed that each, uh, each sentence sort of had a similarity. Uh, the first line of the sentence talked about a little different animal creature and its, its weakness, its unimpressiveness. And then, uh, and then it's followed by the word yet. Ants are not strong, yet they gather their food in the, in the summer. And, uh, and the yet is to catch our attention, to tell us something significant and something remarkable about this tiny little unremarkable creature. And, uh, and so uh, it's an interesting uh, pattern as you, as you uh, read through it. 
All of these little creatures survive and thrive and do quite well despite their weakness. How can this be? Let's go back to uh, verse 25 and look at the ant, for starters. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. The uh, strength or impressiveness of an anthill is not found in any one ant. It's easy to kill an ant. You can squish it with your fingers. I've done that. <coughs> Confession time. Uh, you can hit them with a hammer. I've done that. You can poison them. I've done that. Or you can use a flamethrower. I haven't done that. But they keep coming back. Drives my wife Kathy crazy. I just decide to live with them, but Kathy can't live with them. So we go to war every spring when they come looking for food. Ants are resilient, and they are industrious, and they just keep on trying, and they never seem to get discouraged. There's another passage in Proverbs that talks about ants. In Proverbs chapter 6, it says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider its ways, and be wise. And it's telling us if you want to become wise, you don't need to go to university or seminary. Just go sit by an anthill and watch it for an hour. And you will become at least wiser. And I think that's so true because God's little creatures have things to teach his people. Ants communicate really well. And here's a lesson for us. We don't know how they do it, but somehow word gets around through hundreds of thousands of ants very, very quickly. And, and, and that without Facegram, fa Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok, or I don't know how they do it. <laughs> Have you ever been walking along a sidewalk in the city on a hot summer day and seen uh, some poor soul has dropped their, uh, the, the top of their ice cream cone on the sidewalk? And what usually will you notice pretty quickly? So warming with ants. How did they know that thing was there? And how did word get around to so many ants so quickly that they're all up out of the ground getting their bit of ice cream and taking it down to store for the winter. Somehow, they communicate really well and get the word around. And it's good for God's people to communicate well as well. Ants all have jobs to do. And they understand their roles and they perform their roles diligently. Some ants guard the colony, fight off intruders. Some of them transport food, carry it. Some milk aphids, believe it or not, and feed their young with the milk. That's their job. Some carry out waste and dead ants. That's their job. But they do it well. Not looking, they're not wishing I had your job. They're just happy to do whatever God, job God has programmed into their instinctual nature. Imagine two humans approaching a high wall and they need to get over and one of them jumps, oh, I can't reach. And the other one jumps, oh, I can't reach either. Oh, I guess we won't be able to get over the wall. But two ants approach the same wall and one of them says, I can't reach. The other says, I can't reach. The first one says, okay, I'll bend down and you climb on me and you can get over at least. Ants are resilient and have ingenuity and they're able to do things because they're willing to serve one another. When winter comes, they're ready. As it says, ants gather their food in the summer. There is in every anthill a culture or a collective mentality of industriousness, unselfishness, communication, and role specialization. And we humans are directed by God himself to observe the ant and be wise. 
Next verse, verse 26. Conies are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crag. Uh, it must be a hard word to translate, this animal. Uh, my translation says conies. The New American Standard calls them rock badgers. Uh, there's uh, another translation that calls them hyraxes, whatever that is. It must be some Middle Eastern animal. Basically, they're uh, something like an oversized guinea pig. They have, it says here, little power. The New American Standard Bible says they are not mighty folk. They live and take shelter among big rocky crags. Their strength is not in themselves. It's in the rocks. That's why they survive. An eagle could easily swoop down and pick off a coney. But when he scampers into that little crevice in the rock, totally safe, totally frustrated eagle. That's their strength. Our rock, our safe place, our refuge is God. This is emphasized over and over in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge. 18.3, for who is God besides the Lord and who is the rock except our God? 62, 1 and 2. Truly my soul finds rest in God. He is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress and I will never be shaken. Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. We can learn from the conies. You know what a lightning rod is? It's a little <coughs> metal spire about this tall, perhaps, and you place it on the top of tall buildings. You don't need one on your house, really. They're lower, but uh, tall buildings have lightning rods. The CN Tower has many of them. Our barn, when I was on the farm, used to have lightning rods. And uh, so you have this metal spike at the top of your uh, building, and it's connected by a, a metal cable, and that cable runs down the outside or maybe through the inside of your structure, and it goes into the uh, earth. It's just buried in the dirt. It's called grounding. And the, how a lightning rod works is that when lightning strikes that high point, it'll hit the lightning rod, <coughs> and lightning is full of millions of volts, just massive charge. And if that charge was distributed through your building alone, it would fry the building. It would wreck all of your electronics. It would, uh, the building very likely would burst into flames. But when it strikes a lightning rod, the charge travels instantaneously down the, metal, down the metal wire into the earth. And the earth is massive. I'm talking about planet earth. Huge, of course. And all of that charge is distributed easily into the earth. It's called being grounded. So that instead of that charge blowing up your building, it goes into the earth harmlessly and it's gone. Every Christian needs to be grounded in God so that when lightning strikes your life, it won't blow you up and set you on fire. The destructive nature of the charge will go into God and he'll absorb it and you'll be safe. He is your refuge. I was with Liz this week and she found out about Jack's death. 
and I watch in horror as the lightning struck her. But then I watch with amazement and wonder as she turned to God and she let him carry the destructive force of the news that she received. I'm not saying it was easy for her, very hard. But she's grounded in God, and I have every reason to believe that she'll be fine by God's grace. Are you grounded in God? You know, every coney needs to find its own little rock to hide under or its little crevice to hide in. And every individual Christian in a fruitful and healthy church, every individual Christian needs to be personally grounded in God. You need to have your personal relationship with God. You cannot ride on the coattails of someone else's faith. And some people try to do that. They're, they're basically uh, uh, perhaps neglectful or forgetful or maybe even just lazy as far as pursuing their relationship with God, and they're not very well grounded, and that's a dangerous position to be in. You cannot ride on the coattails, husbands, of your wife's great faith. Wives, you can't ride on the coattails of your husband's faith. Congregation, you cannot ride on the coattails of your pastor's faith. You have to have your own faith, your own crevice in the rock that is your safe place in God. It's all about having a relationship with God. And so let's remember that as a church. Every ordinary person needs to have their own faith in God, their own relationship with God. Your faith doesn't need to be humongous. It just needs to be real. It needs to actually be and that you actually have faith and you're living close to God. Next verse, 27. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. Interesting. Notice two words. They advance, and they advance in ranks. Once again, it's easy to kill a locust. But a swarm of locusts is impossible to stop. Uh, we don't have those around here, but I guess maybe in the Middle East and in Africa especially, swarms of locusts by the millions and millions and millions uh, cover the land, and they eat everything in their sight, and you can't stop them. It's, it's a phenomenon, and it's a terrible thing, uh, but it's, it's just their, their power. Their power is not in their individual selves. It's in their collective selves. And that is also true of the church. And it's really important for all of us to be in rank in the church. Locusts know how to self-organize. There is no lead locust. They have no king, it says. You don't have a lead locust uh, standing at the front with a bullhorn saying, okay, you guys, let's get organized here, and I see a hole in the ranks over there, and they just, they just do it by instinct. They know how to do it, and we also have the spirit. We don't have instinct. We have the spirit in us directing us to advance in ranks as well. I think that's kind of cool. You'll never hear a locust say, oh, is there a gap in the line over there? That's too bad. Don't look at me. Not my job. They all take it as their job, and they will fill the gap. When my kids were little, we were at a concert for their school. It was a Christmas concert, <coughs> and uh, it was cold outside, and it was really warm inside, and I was sitting close to the front row, and all the kids were in a choir, and they were singing. 
singing Christmas carols. One poor little fella in the front row, he got overcome by the heat and the light and something he ate for supper, and it all came out at once. <coughs> the guy that was sitting beside me jumped up and ran out of the room. And I thought, where's he going? Can't stand the sight of this? But momentarily he was back with a mop and a pail full of water, cheerily sweeping or cleaning up the mess, comforting the little fellow, and uh, in no time the concert went on fine. I like he was he was a good locust. He saw a need and he filled the ranks. They advanced in ranks. He filled the gap. How about you? How about me? Do you have that mentality as you come into church? Somebody spill coffee in the hallway? Do you step around it and go, ew, I sure hope somebody fixes that? Or do you head into the kitchen and get some paper towels and tend to it yourself? Once upon a time, there were 13 men, and they went to an upper room for a meal. <coughs> and someone had neglected to arrange for a servant to wash feet a customary thing to do after a long, hot day in the Middle East. And nobody did anything, and the disciples, it doesn't say, but were probably thinking, oh, heck, we forgot to arrange for the servant to wash feet. Oh, well, I guess we'll just have to suffer through sweaty feet tonight. And all of a sudden, coming down the row is nobody other than the Lord Jesus. He's got a basin full of water and a towel, and he's washing their feet. And one of them said, Lord, you shouldn't be doing that. But the lesson was, yes, I should. I'm here as a servant. In business today, we hear the term servant leadership all the time. That's a great idea. It comes from the Bible. It comes from Jesus. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Locusts fill the gap, see the need, take care of it, and uh, it's a mark of a fruitful and healthy church. <coughs> Verse 28, a lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. I don't know if you'd want to catch a lizard or not. I think those little geckos, they're kind of cute. They don't live around here, but um, a lizard can be caught with the hand, yet they are found in king's palaces. Once again, lizards are small and easy to catch and yet they're impossible to get rid of them. <coughs> you could have a king who hates lizards, right? And he's got a palace. This is the best place in town. He's got servants, and he says, I hate lizards. I never want to see another lizard in my palace again. And he orders his three dozen servants to scour the place and find every lizard and get rid of them all and kill them all. And the job is done, and it's just sitting down to supper, and he goes, ah, because there's another lizard up there. Can't get rid of them. They just infiltrate. They sneak in. Our cottage uh, up at Dunks Bay in Tobermory, our cottage is a little wooden structure. It's, uh, <coughs> it's not winterized. It's got a lot of holes and cracks in it. and Things get in, especially bats. And uh, my dear wife doesn't like bats. She sleeps with a badminton racket for which reason I behave myself when I go to bed. <coughs> but uh, she, uh, if there's a bat, 
in the in the in the room in the nighttime. She's up, lights on, and she's going to hit a home run with that <laughs> badminton racket. And she has. I've watched her several times, praying for the bat. <laughs> but uh, you know, you feel like, oh man, we have a problem with bats and my poor wife and everything. And then I was talking to the neighbors one day, and they have a million-dollar cottage, three stories tall. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful structure. No cracks, no holes, no nothing like ours. And they were saying, yeah, they got a problem with bats. <laughs> and I sort of, in a smug, sort of quiet way, said, really? <laughs> yeah, too bad. <laughs> Anyhow, lizards can be found in king's, king's palaces. I like what Paul wrote at the end of the letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Remember the Philippians? We were talking about them back in Acts there. And uh, he, so he's writing a letter later on to them. And he's, he's in Rome and he's a prisoner. And he's, he's telling them sort of like what things are like in Rome. And as he ends his letter, he's sending some greetings from the Christians in Rome to the Philippian Christians. And uh, he says this. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings. And, and I could see uh, maybe some of the Philippians, maybe Lydia and, and some others, and, and, uh, and they're saying, isn't that nice? Huh, there's Christians in Rome now. That's amazing. And they're sending greetings to us. That's amazing. And then Paul goes on here, and he says, I could almost see a smile on Paul's face. I think he did this up deliberately. Saved it for the end of the letter. So he says, all God's people here send you greetings, listening, and especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Caesar's household? Christians in Caesar's household? And the Romans are trying to stamp out all these little lizards and they're in Caesar's household? And I could see the Christians going, yes. We're infiltrating with the gospel, with the life of Christ, one of the darkest possible places. Caesar's household maybe would be the servants. Uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe some relatives. But anyhow, the Christians were there too. I was thinking about our church, and, and, and just our church, not, not to mention all the good churches in Guelph, <coughs> but just at Grace here and how, how uh, all of you are, are scattered in all the nooks and crannies and places throughout the city of Guelph or, or Laura, Fergus, or Rockwood or elsewhere around here. Some of you are in schools as students. Some of you are in schools as teachers. Some of you work in factories. <coughs> Some of you are on the university campus as professors or uh, working in the administrative offices or facilities. Some of you are in gyms, lifting weights. Some of you are in financial institutions. Some of you are in coffee shops and some of you are on construction sites. Grace Community Church will not grow and be fruitful and bring glory to God because it finds an almost perfect lead pastor as much as we look forward to and need a lead pastor. But that's not the key to our success. The key to our success is that its people have infiltrated every corner of the city. All those dark little corners, and they are being light. And they are being salt. And you are speaking of the good news of Jesus. And you're living the good life of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, just as he sent us to do. Some lessons to close <clears throat> quickly. Don't be discouraged by your own weakness. 
in your own unimpressiveness. <clears throat> become engaged, become active, become a functioning part of the larger whole. Someone once said, if you think you're too little to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito. <laughs> Point number two, it's not the job of the pastor to do it all. It's the job of the pastor to get all doing something. What something are you doing? Thirdly, every person must take personal responsibility for their own relationship and rootedness in God. You can't ride the coattails of someone else's faith, no matter how much you admire them. Fourthly, a church that embraces the culture, the culture that its strength and its key to success lies in the active service of all of its everyday ordinary people rather than its paid staff who are important. That church will be more marked by humility and tend to be less famous. We celebrate the little things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Even those obscure verses that talk about locusts and lizards. Use it to capture our imaginations and then capture our hearts. And finally, move our hands and our feet for your glory. Amen. We'll uh, celebrate communion now and uh, Josh will lead us in that. Thank you, Josh, for doing this.